Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. Most of the podcasts you'll find here are recorded in our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises, but occasionally something or someone else will be featured. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not the thump you with it kind of ones. We believe in the world-changing power of the love of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. We're also always trying to integrate all this culturally applicable truth in real ways that reach our emotions and intellects, as well as our spirits. We're starting 2020 with a seven-part series called The Holiness of Health. The truth about our emotional and mental health doesn't always get centre stage in church, and while this is all stuff that we talk about quite a lot at Bread, we wanted to kick off the new decade with a proper, in-depth look at this stuff. We hope you enjoy it. This morning, I want to spend some time thinking about grief. And grief is a fascinating process and really important for us to consider because it's actually something that we all experience far more regularly than we might understand. Obviously, grief is most commonly associated with the feelings we have when someone close to us, someone we love, passes away. Um, But what will hopefully become clear this morning is we actually experience grief whenever we lose something that we considered really important to us. All uh, psychological models and theories of grief universally recognize that people uh, respond to loss in an enormous variety of ways. There is not a one-size-fits-all. And the weight and magnitude of loss is very different for each person. Because our individual uh, responses, our personalized grief reflex, if you will, is characterized by our past. Some experiences of loss will um, be more triggering than others. Uh, The way we grieve is also influenced by our family of origin, how they represented um, navigating loss to us when we were kids, whether we've experienced trauma, our willingness to engage with our emotions and be vulnerable. These things all make a difference. So in some sense, grief actually involves all of the stuff from the past five weeks that we've learned in a massive melting pot. So there's a lot to talk about. And I for sure won't be able to navigate all of it this morning. So, first, what actually constitutes loss? What do we grieve? What emotions are involved? And also, how does God respond to our pain? As I just mentioned, we accumulate many losses throughout our lives. Death is obviously a devastating loss, whether that's the premature death of a friend or a spouse, a child or a parent, or the elderly death of our, one of our grandparents. But there are also other losses that are harder to categorize. <laughs> You're so fine. Um, we have all been there. Oh my gosh. Um, But there are also other losses that are harder to categorize. So a friend of many years betraying you, emotional or sexual abuse, divorce, a cancer diagnosis, infertility, miscarriage, finding out that your role model of many years is actually corrupt, 
graduating college and having to find a job for the first time, that's terrifying. Learning to compromise your independence in a relationship, your body not working in the, with the same ease that it used to, um, your career dreams not going to plan, and even breaking up with your first boyfriend when you were 14 and you really believed that you were going to marry him. <laughs> Mine was called James. <laughs> Sorry, Brandon. Um, when considering grief, the most important issue is not actually calculating where um, this particular loss is on the continuum of sudden to gradual or big to small or even whether we are complicit because, let's just be honest with ourselves, there are also things that we grieve um, that are in direct consequence to decisions we've made or something that we've done, but the overarching point is loss is loss. And loss causes us to feel pain. In the first of his Narnia Chronicles, The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis tells the story of a boy named Diggory. And his mother is dying. And when Diggory first encounters the majestic Aslan, he desperately presents a request to him. He says, may I, please, please will you give me some magic fruit from this country to make my mother well? He had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid that it might say no. But he was taken aback when it did neither. Aslan appears to ignore his request completely. And in the midst of our suffering, the most important question we can often be left with is, does God care? And our uncertainty around this can cause us to question whether God really is good or whether he's loving or kind or fair or even there at all. Where are you, God? What is happening? What did I do to deserve this? We've all asked those questions at different times. And in times of grief, arguably more than any other time, we ask questions of God and we doubt our relationship with, them, with him. And the reality is, um, as Christians, we do live in a tension that there really is no definitive answer to suffering. The kingdom is now. We see foretaste of heaven, break, heaven breaking in. There is physical resurrection. There is healing, as Adam just um, told us his story. Answered prayer. It's extraordinary, biblically, in Christian history and today. And for that reason, we keep praying. But at the same time, the kingdom is not yet. Pain is real. Suffering is real. Some prayers are left unanswered. The story of the magician's nephew continues, and Diggory strikes up the courage to ask Aslan for help again. And here's another little excerpt. He thought of his mother, and he thought of the great hopes he'd had, and how they were all dying away. And a lump came in his throat, and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, please won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. 
They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was. This is the love of God. God's concerned with your pain. God is not intimidated by your anger or uncertainty or your questions. God knows your hopes. God has heard your prayers. And we come to God with the depth of our pain because in the midst of the doubting and in the reality of the world's brokenness and in the presence of suffering, Jesus draws close to us. He rages against the pain, weeps with us and comforts us. And of course, this is not simply the experience of Lewis's fictional character and a lion named Aslan. I'm aware that it's a book. Um, the Bible has countless examples of God's closeness amongst, amidst grief. Let me read you Psalm 42. It says this. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within in me, therefore I will remember you. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls out to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so downcast within me? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. Some of you will be familiar, I'm sure, with the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She published a model on grief in 1969, and essentially what she suggests is that we experience a deluge of emotions when we grieve, and we navigate many stages in the grief process, namely denial, Anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Dabda, for short. And what she says is that being aware of these elements of grief and engaging with them is not a tick list to get through. Grief doesn't happen in a nice, neat, little, orderly fashion until we arrive at the doors of acceptance, even though it would be great if it did. What she says is that we will swing back and forth between all of these stages at different times. Sometimes we'll even feel many of them, if not all of them at the same time, which is often why grief feels so confusing. What Dabda tells us is that to healthily grieve, we must allow ourselves to honestly express our emotions. And this is something that the psalmists knew all about. 
two-thirds of the Psalms are what is known as laments, com proper complaints to God about losses. And the writers use visceral imagery and brutal honesty to express their emotions. I mean, let me just highlight some of Psalm 42 again, because David swings back and forth from making declarations about who God is. I remember you, I'll pour out my soul, I will yet praise him, to desperately begging for vindication and doubting whether God is there at all. Have you forgotten me? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me. Where is your God? And something that's really interesting to note is that memory played a particularly important role in the life of Israel. And remembering God and what he has done appears more than 350 times in the Old Testament. But unlike our understanding of memory, for Israel, Memory didn't just mean um, bringing to mind a set of facts or um, feelings about previous experiences. Memory wasn't like, um, I'm sure you all do this, hopefully, um, but memory wasn't like flicking through your Instagram and being like, wow, remember that? That was great. Palm Springs. Um, I want to be in Palm Springs. <laughs> Guys, summer's coming. Um, a call to remember something was a call to action. So to remember God, to say, I remember God and all that he has done was to simultaneously declare that you were committed to him, that you believed that he was good, that he was faithful, and that you would actively behave in a way that represented your devotion. So when David says, these things I remember in verse four, the undercurrent of what he is saying is, I believe amidst my current pain and suffering, that you are who you say you are. You are good, and I will, main, I will still be faithful to you. But then, let us take a note of how the verse continues. Because it says this in the fifth verse, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. So David is worshipping, is remembering God, is being very honest about his suffering with God in this psalm, in the presence of other people. Why is that important? Because by her very nature, Israel were God's people, a collective, a body, a family. Now, obviously, fully aware that we are living in the reality of what Jesus has already done through his death and resurrection. Unlike Israel, each one of us is now able to have an intimate and personal connection with our Father in heaven. Each one of us is adopted as a child. He knows you by name. However, the power of communal remembrance still rings true because... You have been adopted as a child, but you have also been adopted into a family. We remain a body. That's why we come to church. And the Psalms are an example of communal laments, communal praise, and communal thanksgiving. So when we, on Sunday mornings, just as we did, when we come and worship together, if you pay attention especially to the first couple of songs that we sing, we sing songs that declare who God is what he's done, what he's like. You are good, you are loving, you are powerful, you are in control, you are king of kings, yours is the kingdom, those types of lyrics. And we do that for a reason. We start there for a reason. 
we start worship by declaring um, what we believe because we believe that there is a power in remembering that God is who he says he is, even amidst our current life, our pain and our grief. So worshiping together is a place of memory. Together, we call to mind what is really easy to forget when we're alone, that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And as I come to a close this morning, I want to ask us one final question. What happens when we remember who God is? We're able to be really honest with him. In this psalm, David is coming to God with his blackest emotions. No holds barred, no religious prayer language, no weird prayer voice, no inauthentic responses to pain like everything happens to a, for a reason. We've all said it. Um, but raw emotion, intense anger, depression, rage, despair. David knows in times of grief, God is my friend. Um, a few months after I became a Christian, I um, was at dinner with some people. And across the table from me was the pastor of the church and one of the elders or leadership team. And during dinner, the pastor asked me about my current experience of prayer. Bearing in mind, I had, just bear in mind, I've had no experience of these kinds of conversations. I didn't grow up in church. And immediately, I decided to tell them about a run, run I had been on that previous week. And I decided to go on a run because I was feeling very emotional that day. And I thought, I'm just going to sweat it out which does give you an insight on how I really kind of um, innately respond to my emotions, which is, I can sweat them out, right? <laughs> you can just go on a run and they won't be there anymore. Um, but during my run, I had this weird experience. Um, I began to feel like um, anger was expanding inside of me like a balloon. And I don't really know how, how else to describe it. Um, but it was like a physical sensation of like welling up of tension. So when I finally found myself in the depths of Hyde Park, I looked around me to check whether I could see anyone and I decided that I couldn't. And I decided that I would pray out loud at the top of my lungs. So it would be more correct to say shout pray um, or scream pray. Um, and I prayed anything that came into my mind. But as you can imagine... I was angry, I was emotional, my prayers weren't very PG-13. I was holding nothing back. And in my fit of angry prayer age, um, I'll also tell you that I also decided to kick a tree, which turned out not to be recommended. I really did hurt my foot. Um, but back to the dinner, back to the pastor. I told, him, I told him and this leader everything. Um, and what I mean by that is I told them exactly what I had prayed. And as I just said, my prayers weren't very PG-13. And right as I finish, I'm thinking, these guys are going to find the king of the tree bit really funny because, <laughs> quite frankly, I kicked a tree in prayer. That's kind of funny. Um, so as is my way, I was kind of like finishing my story like, here it is. Here's the good bit. Um, but in that moment, I caught the elder's eye and I realized that he is completely shocked that I would speak to God in that way. 
And the only way I can describe what he looked like is that he looked like all of his bones were fused together. <laughs> um, I, it might be a British thing, but he was very like, but in like a very judgmental way. Um, and I immediately begin to feel anxious, shallow breaths, like rising in my throat, like, what did I do wrong? Um, and in that same moment, John, the church leader, bursts out laughing and immediately lays a hand on my shoulder and says, you should just keep going with that. Because God isn't scared of your anger. He'll meet you in it. And the more you give it to him, the more he can fill you with his spirit and he'll heal you. He will heal you. And the reality is, emotions that are considered negative, so anger, sadness, uh, disappointment, hurt, all of which are involved in grief, have often been represented in a church context as either unspiritual or even as far as sinful. And the shocked leader, in my experience, was a very, very tame example of that. And to be clear, recounting my experience of kicking a tree and shouting at God is not me saying that I think that is a healthy way or the only way to grieve. Um, what I am saying is, whatever your emotional response, whatever words you use, whatever decibel your voice reaches, however many times you cry out to God in despair, he wants to know about your pain. He's not offended by what you feel because you're his and he loves you. So we must try to walk away from any experience of church or theology that has told us, either directly or indirectly, that denying our emotions or refusing to acknowledge the pain we are experiencing is more spiritual. Um, what I didn't tell the pastor at dinner, probably, I'm now looking back, I would assume because it felt too vulnerable at the time, but what I didn't tell him was that right at the end of that kind of like praying out loud, angry episode, I fell to the ground and I cried for a while. Because underneath of all of that anger, what was really lying below was pain and sadness. And as I knelt on the ground, I had this experience of God drawing close to me. And it's interesting because I've had a very similar one again and again um, as the years have gone by. And obviously this is completely subjective, but I felt like God was cradling me like a child. Physically cradling, like I could feel warmth on my body. And there was a heaviness um, all over my body. And I knew it, it wasn't burdensome. It didn't feel like something I couldn't carry. It felt like the love of my father in heaven all over me. And after a few minutes, I felt like God say to me, not in an audible voice, but just kind of like a knowing sense in my head. I felt like God say to me, you can give it to me. I can take the pain. Sometimes this stuff can be healed in an instant. I've seen people be prayed for and they look physically different, physically lighter, um, physically freer. That's awesome. So we pray for it. But sometimes healing is also a process, which is more my experience personally. Um, but as I walked home that day, hobbling with my hurty foot, and I definitely had to go to the doctor, um, I did feel like some of that pain had left me. 
I did feel that I was healed. And as I have come back to Jesus again and again and again, I have felt lighter and lighter and lighter. And in the process of feeling freer, I have felt more filled with his spirit, more filled with his life, his living water, which I've actually come to realize the more it happens that it's the one thing I can't live without. Because it's what I was created for. And it's what you were created for. And it's the only thing that will make any one of us whole. This is the power of Jesus. He can take away the weight of our pain and suffering. He can restore to us what has been stolen. He it is who is able to heal, heal the wounds of our past. And he it is who is able to relieve the pain of our grief. If we can open ourselves to the power and the, um, the, power and the healing of the spirit as often as we can. That's why we pray for people at the end of services. Because it's him and only him who can take it for good. Because where his spirit is, that's where there's freedom. So if the band could come up. All the talks from our Sunday services are written with an aim to point people towards and help them open themselves to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't think he's just a bit part or an optional extra in our Sunday services. Following his lead is kind of the whole point. So at the end of each service, we invite everyone to receive prayer. There's no magic in the way that we pray for people. We've just found that it's the easiest and most natural way to open ourselves. And that when we do that, he often meets us in the most wonderfully transformative ways. If you're able to join us at a service, we'd always encourage you to give this a go, as out of your comfort zone as it may be. Do drop us a line at hello at bread.church if you'd like to talk about any of this more. Thanks for listening.